Podcastle, episode 294, for January 14th, 2014. Sandcastles, by Desirina Boscovich. Rated R. Contains some drug use. Light them up, Colorado. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Dave Thompson, your host and co-editor. So, it's the new year. It's been the new year for a couple of weeks now, but something I failed to mention in the last couple of episodes are New Year's resolutions. Here's the thing about resolutions, and I apologize if this sounds like a recording, but I suck at resolutions. Maybe this is because I set myself up for failure every year with unreasonable goals. Maybe this is because I have the wrong goals. So this year, I'm going to do something a little bit different. This year, I'm making the resolution to bring the hyperbole at Podcastle. I'm really excited about this resolution because usually my resolutions blow up in my face about a month later. A month, if I'm lucky. But this one's going to be different. Let me practice. This year, folks, is going to be the best year we've ever had at Podcastle. That was pretty good, right? Not just the best year of Podcastle, but of any podcast anywhere this year. And the whole history of podcasting. What? Drabblecast had a Philip K. Dick story last year. A Jack Vance story. Okay, right. This is going to be the best year of Podcastle or any other podcast this year. This week's story is going to be... What? Pseudopod did who? And what about Escape Pod? Cornbluff? Really? Well, this week's story is going to be the best podcast story you heard today. That was released today. I'm sorry, but if you listen to it tomorrow, I just don't think I can really guarantee it'll be the best. Still, this story, <laughs> it's its pretty good. You know, why does everyone have to be the best ever, or the greatest thing ever, or the worst? Why can't something just be its own thing and be special and... Crap. I didn't even make it a month, did I? No. I guess I'm just not cut out for this whole hyperbole thing. Better off trying to lose weight. Anyway, today we're proud to present Sandcastles by Desirina Boscovich, originally published in Realms of Fantasy. I miss that magazine. Desirina Boscovich's stories have appeared also in Fantasy Magazine, Clark's World, Nightmare, and Lightspeed. She's a graduate of the Clarion Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Workshop, class of 2007, and has lived in all four corners of the United States, as well as the middle. She makes her living as a freelance writer and marketing consultant. She's co-authoring the upcoming Steampunk User's Manual with Jeff Vandermeer, and her forthcoming work is in It Came From the North, an anthology of Finnish fantasy and weird fiction, mm, shiny, as well as The End Is Nigh, the upcoming anthology edited by John Joseph Adams and Hugh Howey, busy author. Our reader this week is the greatest reader in the history of Podcastle. Well, at least this week, maybe the lousiest. You decide while he drives and fiddles with the car stereo. So, shape that castle just right, make sure you dig a trench around it so the waves don't crash into it and wash all your hard work away, and enjoy the story. Sandcastles by Desirina Boscovich Radley calls me one morning in June 
He says he's flying into Pensacola that night and he wants to know if I can pick him up. He says there's a girl with him. They need a ride from the airport and maybe a place to crash. I haven't seen Radley since a month ago. When we graduated from the Art Institute, packed up our stuff and moved out. I kind of miss him. And I'm curious about this girl. I picked him up at the airport. We dropped their suitcases off at my dad's place where I'm crashing for the summer. By now it's late, so we head to the bar. The girl's name is Audra. Her hair is strawberry blonde, hanging in thin strands around her face. I've never seen anyone with eyes quite that color before. A pale green. Her skin is pale too, and lightly freckled. Delicate features, pointy chin. She's wearing a pastel green long sleeve shirt, loose khakis, and a hemp necklace that she made herself. She has too many earrings. I can't decide if I like her or not. Bradley is the same as always, disheveled, relaxed, oddly focused. There's this anticipant glow in his blue eyes. His clothes are tattered and splattered with dribbles of paint. His dark dreadlocks are longer than ever and he smells like pot. He always smells like pot. Welcome to Pensacola, I say. Pensacola is a tacky tourist trap and it doesn't feel like home. I sip my drink and wait for them to tell me what they're doing here. Yeah, Pensacola's great, Radley says. Just great. He gulps his margarita and gazes around the bar. It's dark and glitzy, the walls littered with lays and toucans. Interesting use of the palm tree motif, he says. He isn't being sarcastic. So, what have you been up to, Nat? Well, not much, really, I say. You know, staying with my dad while I look for a job. I'm not actually looking for a job. After that terrible interview last week, I decided to put the job search on hold. Cool, he says. Uh, so, gone on any interviews yet? A couple, I say. Three, actually. Each one of them worse than the last. Office jobs. So, how'd they go? Okay, I guess. As in, there were no explosions or untimely deaths. Like, did you get it? I'm still waiting to hear back. Actually, I could care less if I ever hear back. Well, good luck with that, Radley says. If I mean that's what you really want. It's not what I really want, but it's life. It's the way life works. Oh, yeah, I say. So, what brings you to Pensacola? <laughs> We're on a journey, Radley says. We have a map, Audra says. She speaks quietly, barely above a whisper. But I have no trouble hearing her, even in the noisy bar. Yeah, Radley says, we have a map. But what we don't have is a car, Radley finishes. I'm amused, but not surprised. Artists, this is about all you can expect. So exactly where is this map leading you, I ask. Somewhere on the Gulf of Mexico, Audrey says. A beach. There's one outside, you know. We need this particular beach. Because of the sand, Radley says. What? Because we need it, Audra says. And they won't say anything more. Two drinks later, they still haven't told me why. Pop hits play loud on the speakers and the room gets a little fuzzier. My drinks are too sweet. A succession of fruity fantasies. 
There are girls in many skirts and wife beaters, flipping their cell phones open and talking too loudly. A waitress comes by and flirts with me. She's tall and hollow-cheeked with a fountain of blonde hair, like a species of tropical bird. She leans in close, but I just shrug away. The whole time I can feel Radley and Audra watching me carefully. We sit there for a while, drinking. Neither one says anything about why they need the sand, so I start guessing. You want to make sand art with it? Sort of, Audra says, crossing her narrow wrists on the table in front of her. She's wearing hemp bracelets, too, threaded with tiny white shells. I figured her out. She's a jewelry maker and fashion designer on the side. That pink sash threaded through her belt loops, she made it herself. It's dark outside, but still hot. Humidity crawls inside, fogs the drinking glasses, which gives me an idea. You want to melt it into glass? Audra stares at me over the rim of her strawberry daiquiri, the corners of her mouth crinkling with a hint of a smile. Radley is destroying napkins, ripping them into shreds, dipping them in his drink, and molding the paste into miniature sculptures. You want to bury yourself alive, I guess. You want to build an hourglass. No one is telling me anything, even though they obviously want something from me, so I just keep drinking. The hollow-cheeked waitress has lost interest, but I don't care. She wasn't my type anyway. You need to exfoliate with it? Audra's lips are chapped. I try not to wonder why. How long have she and Radley known each other anyway? I can't remember seeing them together when we were at school. Even though Radley always had girls around him, something about him drew them, like hipsters swarming to a dirty coffee shop. Probably had something to do with his effortless talent, his magnetic passion and drive, and his lack of sustained interest in any of them. Some of those girls were crazy about him, but he never got involved. Maybe he had other things to care about, and maybe he just didn't know how. Audra seems different. She's not intimidated by him, and he listens when she talks. You want to make a sandbox? You want to throw it in people's eyes? Audra actually laughs. You're getting close. I can't help but feel satisfied that I've made her laugh. I can't compete with Radley's magnetic personality, but at least I make girls laugh. I'm out of ideas and too drunk to be clever anymore, so I go for the obvious. You want to build sandcastles, I say. Audra smiles. So, will you drive? At home, I build a plush foundation of sheets and blankets on my dad's living room floor and spread sleeping bags on top. Those are for me and Radley. I let Audra have my bed. We tiptoe upstairs, speaking in whispers so we don't wake up my dad. I show her my bedroom. She stands in the middle of the room, gazing at the walls, the half-finished sketches and immature drawings, the posters from Pulp Fiction and Dave Matthews Band, the concert ticket stubs pinned to the corkboard as mementos. This was your room when you were a child, she says. Only in the summertime when I used to stay with my dad. I love it, she says. Did you draw those? Yeah, I say. A long time ago. I want to see more, she says. She yanks down the sheets and blankets on my bed and lies down. Before I can say anything else, 
She stretches, yawns, and falls asleep instantly. I watch her for a moment, noticing the way her hair fans out across my plaid pillowcase. Then, I feel guilty for watching her while she sleeps, so I close the door. Bradley is waiting for me in the living room. Nice house, he says. Thanks, I say. It's my dad's. I feel embarrassed, like I should apologize. It's so spacious and clean and suburban. Nothing like the messy apartment we lived in together, with crumpling plaster and creaking floorboards and thrift store couches, dirty dishes on all the counters, stoned roommates on all the furniture. My life is a lot different now, but I figure Radley's life is exactly the same. So, I say, Audra, what's up with you guys? Like, you know, nothing, he says. We're just friends, just friends taking a road trip together. But, you know, do you like her? Of course I like her, he says. We're friends. I figure he's not going to say anything else, but I know him well enough to draw my own conclusions. Of course he likes her. He stretches out, left arm thrown out comfortably, eyes half closed. So, I say, trying to get all my questions in fast. Drinking always makes him sleepy, not chatty. What about the beach, then? Why do you really want to go there? You guys are just fooling with me, right? You want to go on vacation in Mexico? Radley opens one eye and regards me lazily. There's this myth, he says. What? What is it? A magic city underwater. It's the sand. It's... And you think we're going there? He doesn't say anything for a while. And I have the idea that he's prepping a reasoned argument, a clever retort. But then he emits a soft snore, and I realize he's fallen asleep. In the morning, we stumble around my dad's kitchen, while the morning sunshine drenches the terracotta tiles in warmth. My dad meanders in, wearing a ratty bathrobe. Beneath the hem, his calves are deeply tanned, fuzzy with wild tufts of gray hair. He makes himself a bowl of bean sprouts and tofu chunks drizzled with soy sauce. I introduce him to Radley and Audra. He holds Audra's hand for a long time when he shakes it, which I don't like. It's embarrassing. We're going on a road trip, I tell him. Where? he asks, munching bean sprouts, checking out Audra. Oh, to the beach, I say vaguely. The details of our conversation last night are a little hazy. I don't actually remember. Awesome, he says. For my dad, it's all about the beach. For a fleeting moment, I think I see Radley's future, but it makes me too depressed. So I do my best to forget it. I get a glass out of the cabinet and pour Audra some orange juice. I don't find out where we're going until we're outside, packing up the car, hefting our backpacks and sleeping bags into the back of my beat-up Volvo station wagon. Audra pulls out the map, and she and Radley inspect it leaning casually against the front grille of the car. It's only 10.30 in the morning, but already the sun is blazing and the air is steamy. Beads of sweat are sticking to my forehead. It smells swampy and salty. It smells like hot pavement. The constant noises of crashing surf and sluggish traffic harmonize relentlessly. By the way, Radley says, we may have to cross the border. Do you have your birth certificate handy? 
Um, I say, and find it eventually in the dusty back drawer of a forgotten file cabinet in my dad's kitchen. We drive all day on I-10, skating the edge of the gulf. We cross the endless bridge into Mobile. The water ripples away on each side, stippled blue. The highway suspended over it for miles. Watching it, everyone gets quiet. We cross into Louisiana, veer away from the gulf for a while, and the scenery becomes murky and verdant, with a rotting vegetable smell and swampy dankness clinging to everything. In Texas, things become dry beige again, the emptiness of glittering pavement and dry prairies. Audra looks out the window a lot and doesn't say much. I wonder what she's thinking. We trade off driving, taking shifts. Radley talks about his theories on how to save the world. His most recent one has to do with parks. He came up with this a couple months ago when we were still roommates, so I've already heard it. From the look on her face, Audra has too. I'm just saying, man, he says. We need more parks. Parks. Humans are meant to survive in this. He gestures out the window to the wasteland of strip malls and burnt asphalt that is Texas. If the human race had a little more green space, some places to relax, everyone would be like, a little more chill. Don't you think maybe the problems go a little deeper than that? But maybe they don't, Radley says, naively faithful, like some postmodern prophet of parks. What about Sudan, I say? What about the Middle East? What about all the wars that have been going on for centuries? You notice, they don't have many parks in those places, he says. Stop arguing, boys, Audra says. But like most kids trapped in a long car ride, we just can't help it. Don't you think that parks are a kind of Eurocentric concept? I ask innocently. No, everyone loves parks, Radley says. I read some studies about it. Little kids who grow up around parks are like 82% more likely to be happy and well-adjusted and everything. I totally just made that statistic up, but you know, you get the point. I argue for a while, but then I give up. Radley is so confidently, frustratingly self-assured, and he keeps countering my arguments with sad stories about little kids who live in the inner city and don't have anywhere to play because the streets are filled with contaminated needles and broken glass. More parks might not solve everything, but I figure they wouldn't hurt either. Just outside of Houston, we get off I-10 and head toward the coast. We decide to stay the night in Galveston, on the beach. We drive up the strip for a little while, looking at the stacks of hotels, the neon lights, the handwritten signs, the girls in their bikinis and skirts. We stop at the cheapest motel we can find. The motel room is cold and damp inside, cloying humidity creeping in from the ocean and magnified by the panting air conditioner. The air is choked with the odor of stale cigarette smoke. There are two double beds, bedspreads printed in bright flowers of splashed puke. The plaster on the walls is crumbling. The bathroom floor is missing tiles. The faucet is being colonized by black mold. There is no clock radio. I figure Radley and Audra must feel right at home. We order takeout and sit on the floor cross-legged, passing around cartons of sesame chicken and broccoli beef. We steal each other's food and squabble quietly over the fourth egg roll. 
After dinner, Radley stretches out on the bed and starts rolling a joint from the small Ziploc bag in his pocket. How did you get that on the airplane? I ask. He gleefully tells me about a special technique, condom packed with weed, submerged in a full bottle of shampoo. The television has only three channels, all of them blurry. Darkness is falling outside and it's finally cooling down, so Audra and I decide to go for a walk. There's a convenience store nearby, so we stop and grab a pack of beers and head down to the beach. There's an easy intimacy between us, the kind of familiarity that comes from sitting in a hot car for 11 hours, crossing three state lines together, finding our way into small talk, liking the same songs. We walk the steps down to the beach and kick off our sandals in the hillocks of white sand. We'll be here when we get back, I say even though Audra doesn't seem concerned. The sky shimmers periwinkle blue, the last shade before dark. Light from the hotels and crab shacks spills onto the sand, but the ocean is an infinite void. That's one of the things that always surprises me about the ocean, how dark it is at night. The sand is still warm on our feet. Couples sit holding hands, and a few families are picking up their beach towels and whining kids. I feel content, tired and full, with a cold beer in my right hand and four more dangling from my left. There's just one thing. So, when are you guys going to tell me what's going on? I ask. Soon, Audra says. Come on, where's your sense of adventure? Just this morning, I was sitting in my dad's kitchen in Pensacola, looking sadly at his hairy ankles, and now I'm walking down the beach in Galveston, Texas, and I have no idea where I'm going. You know, I'd say that my sense of adventure is functioning fine. I know. I didn't think you'd want to go, but Radley said you would. Yeah, I didn't really buy his story about just happening to catch a cheap flight into Pensacola and then just happening to remember that I live there. She laughs a little and takes another sip of her beer. I could tell you didn't. Radley's got lots of talents, but lying isn't one of them. We're quiet for a few moments. The surf laps gently on the beach, filling in the gaps. I'm glad you came, she says. She tucks her hair behind her ears. Me too. I think about what to say next. I don't have much else to do, though. Since I got done with art school, I've been feeling kind of lost. I know how that feels. She doesn't offer anything else, so I keep talking. I'm not really sure what I want to do now. I thought I loved making art, but I really just loved looking at it. Do you still draw? Sometimes. Small sketches in my notebooks. Cartoons. Oh, she says. The drawings in your bedroom. I forgot about those. They were really good. Not really, I shrug. I know she's just being nice. I just draw for myself now. Maybe a couple other people. People you want to say something special to? I don't know what to say, so I just shrug again, then change the subject. I remember Radley's first gallery show, end of junior year. Walking down the gallery, seeing all those people, seeing the way they looked at him, and a girl in a slim black dress and heels, who reached out with one finger to trace the outline of a sculpture. Her index finger hovered in the air, following the pull of an invisible line. 
This is the memory that's the clearest to me, but I don't tell Audra that part. Anyway, I continued, that's when I realized that Bradley was the real deal, and then I began to realize that I wasn't. It's just part of going to art school, figuring out who's serious and who isn't. Bradley has a way with ceramics and clay, and other things that can be squished, shaped, and sculpted. His hands understand the material world too easily, as if he's more a part of it than the rest of us. And you envy him, Audra says. No, I say, I don't envy him. He's too nice. And he still has this idea his art is going to change the world. I already know that the world doesn't change. Maybe it will, Audra says. I cast a quick, anxious glance at her. Is she in love with him, like all the others? But she drops her eyes and looks away. Nothing, never mind, she says even though I haven't said anything. There's a moment of awkward silence until she changes the subject. So, where is your mother? It's a rude question, I think, but I don't care. She lives in New Jersey. I used to live there, too. I just stayed with my dad in the summers. Guess I'm still kind of in the habit. Yeah, Audra says. She's finished her beer. I take the empty can from her and toss it, along with my own, into one of the big trash cans at the edge of the beach. We start two more. What about you? I ask. Where are your parents? She hesitates. I lost them, she says. My mom and I immigrated together and left my dad behind. We went from city to city for a while, but a few years ago I lost her too. Since then, I haven't been able to find my way back home. I'm not an artist, and I know that now. I don't really know what my talents are, but I know one of them. I've always been good at discovering things that need love, and then figuring out how to love them. I reach out and take her hand. She doesn't acknowledge my hand squeezing hers, but she doesn't pull away. All my life, she says, I've been homesick for this place that I barely even remember anymore. I know exactly what she means. I miss her, Audra whispers. It's dark now. We drift toward the surf. At the water's edge, Audra seems to come alive. She appears more colorful, tinted with a richer palette. The moonlight is drawn to the pale loveliness of her face and the light gleams on the bits of shell and metal threaded into her necklace. She smells like saltwater taffy. Looking into her eyes, I feel like I'm underwater. Dazed and sluggish, my movement's clumsy. I want her. Badly. I reach out a hand and brush the silvery light hair away from her face, resting my fingers against her cheek. She doesn't pull away. Experimentally, I lean in and brush my lips across hers, then kiss her, and she kisses back. She tastes salty sweet, just like she smells. We walk home in silence, holding hands. When we get home, Radley is already half asleep, and the TV is on low, and no one has very much to say. The next morning we get up early, too early, 
It's still cool outside when we pack up again, check in our keys, and say goodbye to the musty motel room. Radley eyes Audra and me speculatively. Things have changed, and he knows, but he doesn't say anything about it. Just takes the back seat and lets me have the first driving shift. We drive through Texas. It takes a long time. Texas never ends. Six hours later, we're starving and we're about to cross the border. We stop for lunch and then we go for it. I've never been across the border before, so I'm nervous, but Radley says it will be no big deal. We wait in the line, stop and start, following the lead of the changing lights. The guard comes and checks us out, looks at her papers, checks the back of the car. There's some problem with Audra's papers. I'm not exactly sure what it is. Audra and Radley and the guard stand outside on the concrete and talk and gesture for a while, and I sit inside the hot car, waiting, getting hotter. I can't hear what they're saying, but I can tell that Audra's flirting with the guard, pursing her lips and tucking tendrils of hair behind her ears. I wish I was out there. The guard seems to relent, but then offers a word of warning. Radley and Audra nod and agree. I'm watching a silent movie with no subtitles, wondering what's going on. They get back in the car. We're good, Radley says. They're letting her through? Yeah, Audra says. Are they going to let her back in again? I ask, as if I'm joking, even though I'm not. I've heard that getting into Mexico is easier than getting back out. I'm not worried, Audra says. So we drive. On the other side, everything is different. Buildings are made of concrete and painted in Easter egg pastels. Signs splashed with phrases in Spanish. People stand on the streets talking to one another, laughing, not going anywhere in particular. Driving is different, more chaotic. The rules are less defined. Once I figure that out and learn to go with the flow, the driving becomes easier, except for those fleeting moments of adrenaline. The roads quickly disappear. The town fades into wilderness. The road fades away into dirt. We're lost, and none of us has ever been lost like this before. The narrow, fading roads have no signs, and everything looks the same. Dusty terrain, dry bush, cottages patched together out of aluminum and plywood, threadbare as used quilts. I pull over where the side of the road would be if there was a road. Audra and Radley put away the faded Gulf Coast map they've been using, and from a pocket in his bag, Radley pulls out a new map. It's rolled up like a poster, with a ribbon tied around the middle. He unrolls it, and I see that it's small, about the size of a placemat. Radley and Audra lean their heads close together and inspect the map, caressing its tattered corners. I lean in, too, vibrantly aware of Audra's shoulder touching mine, her finger stroking the map. The map is old and strange. It's made out of a soft, flexible material like sheepskin, the corners dog-eared and parts worn thin, but still strong. The delicate stuff is hand-painted, inked in wide and flowing brushstrokes in vivid colors, streaks of red, black, and green. I can make out the gulf, but... Everything else is fuzzy. There are dozens of tiny roads inked on, all leading to miniature beaches. 
On the map, the beaches show up as small voids, the peachy tan of softened leather. Radley meets my eyes, awkwardly. So, the map's sort of confusing, he says. Where'd you find this? In the library, he said. In the antique book section, I just came across it. When he's at the library, Radley always heads for the section with the oldest books first. I imagine it's because the ancient texts smell fragrant and musty, like his clothes, the fibers laden with years of smoke and not enough trips through the laundry. Or maybe it's because the antique books are more material, existing for the physical fact of themselves and not the information inside them. Concrete and corporal objects, like his sculptures, taking up space in their own way. Radley touches the map with his index finger, trying to trace his way down the coast. So I had this map, and then I found Audra. She was looking for the map too, and she knew how to read it. Audra interrupts. We'll just have to orient ourselves with the sun until we can find a road that looks right, she says curtly. Nat, just stay as close to the coast as you can. I wonder why she doesn't want to talk about the map, but I don't say anything. So we keep driving through a chalky landscape. Dry brush and prickly weeds washed in gray. Startled jackrabbits leap away from the noise of the car. The dirt road is covered with beige spots, and I realize after a stop that the spots are the flattened carcasses of dead toads, eroded to papery skins. We pass only a few villages and see almost no one. The whole world seems flat and dreary, almost a dream. Maybe that's why Audra starts telling the story she does. She's staring out the window, a distant expression on her face. As I drive, I sneak glances at her to see the shadowy play of a smile at the corners of her mouth. She crosses her legs, folds her hands in her lap, and clears her throat as if to get our attention. Let me tell you a story, she says. We're silent, assenting, and she talks. Once upon a time, in the fading days of the last epoch, there lived a people who were unique, different from all the others. They devoted their energies to building palaces when others were making war. And these palaces were glorious, crafted from pink quartz, a mineral that was so plentiful in those days, but has since almost completely disappeared. Her voice is lyrical, almost a chant. Is she making this up as she goes, or reciting a story she learned by heart? These people, they devised clever technologies. They found ways to shield their castles from the harshness of the sun and the ravages of the rain. I decide this must be a story that she's memorized. She would never use a phrase like that on her own. They were beautiful and wise, but the gods were jealous. These humans were too much like themselves. In revenge, the gods shifted the oceans so that the waves would come rolling in and devour the castles. I listen, so lulled by the sound of her voice that I'm not even aware of the sagebrush and toad skins. And then I remember, this is the myth, the one Radley mentioned earlier, after we got home from the bar, before he passed out. But the people outsmarted the gods, through cleverness or magic. They brought their people together and blew a bubble that encompassed the city. It quivered, but it did not break. Safe in its bubble, 
The city was swallowed by the waves. Millennia have passed now, and they've perfected their magic and their machines, and the bubble is stronger than ever. What does this story mean to her, I wonder? Is it just a children's story? Is it an allegory, some kind of parable for modern-day existence? Does she think it's real? I don't know, but I still want to hear more, so I pull the car over, get out, and make Radley drive instead. He's already heard this story, I think. He drives for a while, slouching in the driver's seat, his eyes half-closed. I listen to Audra, watching the way her mouth moves, the creases around her eyes when she smiles, the way her eyes flutter upwards when she's trying to remember the details. You should see the palaces, she says, a sprawl, a tangle of courtyards and turrets and staircases, glimmering walls, gardens of grasses, seaweed blooming year-round in the murky ocean light. She pauses as if searching for a new image. We walk on paths of pale sand, like sugar. We wear necklaces of seaweed and shells. I start to think that Audra might be a little insane. Perversely, it only makes me want her more. Radley straightens a little, speaks up. It's hard to find the city even when you're looking for it, he says confidently, and for some reason I feel a little pissed off. It's part of the magic, but every now and then, a diver who allows his heart to accept wonder will make it down there and be welcomed. Sometimes they send their scouts up to the top to explore the world and bring back novelties to recreate. Yeah, Audra says. She paused for a moment. Some of those people never come back. It has always been this way, and it will always be this way. It is the way it should be. But I hear the break in her voice. She doesn't sound so convinced. Everyone is silent for a while. Alone in the back seat, I stare out the window at the bizarre landscape, so unlike anything we've ever imagined. It's otherworldly in its simplicity and bareness. Audra might be crazy. She probably is. But here, in this brief, fantastic moment, it's not so impossible to believe in the existence of other worlds. And I want to believe, just like they do. We all, desperately, want to believe. The sun sinks toward the horizon, and the landscape is washed in dusty pink. The day ends sooner here, and that adds to the strangeness, the feeling of being lost in time. We don't find our beach that night. We don't have any money, so we end up sleeping in the car, and for a while I'm worried. But then I realize there's no one around for miles. There are scorpions, though. A dead scorpion falls out of the bottom of our bag of snacks when I empty the last of our stash onto the hood of the car. It must have crawled in there on one of our stops. I scream like a girl, and Radley and Audra both laugh. Before we sleep, we sit outside for a while and stare up at the stars, brighter than we've ever seen them before. They seem so big, close enough to reach out and touch them, and I get a brief glimpse of how different life must have been a century ago before our skies were polluted with false light. I wonder when we'll find our beach, Radley says. Soon, Audra says. Tomorrow, maybe. Probably. 
So, what are we looking for anyway? I ask. Buried treasure, right? I'm just kidding. That's so not Radley. He doesn't care about stuff like that. But Radley glances at me seriously and then shrugs. The palaces. Some of the sand washes up from below. And it still has some of the magic, you know? So, there's this legend. If you search for the beach with nothing but pure love in your heart, you'll be able to sculpt from the sand the thing you most desire, and it will come true. I almost laugh, but then I don't. Radley is as serious as a six-year-old. So what do you most desire, I ask? To make something that matters, he says, that will actually change the world. What about you, Audra? I just want to go home, she says. I wait for someone to ask me what it is I most desire, but no one does. I'm relieved, because I'm not sure I know. In the darkness, I reach for Audra's hand. All I want to do is sneak off into the desert with her and be alone. I feel a little guilty. I know that Radley feels something for her, something he's not entirely sure how to communicate, so unused to being the one that pursues. But I also feel justified. He already has all the things I wanted. Isn't it fair for me to have just one? We wake up at the crack of dawn. The car is uncomfortable and freezing, and we all need the bathroom, so we get another early start. We drive through a small town and find a place to use the bathroom. Everyone we meet is shouting, gesticulating, grinning. Even though no one understands a word anyone says, Radley somehow manages to barter for some breakfast. They give us coffee and hot buttered corn tortillas, small and thick and lumpy. They're the best tortillas I've ever had in my life. Then, around 10 or 11 in the morning, we're there. According to the map, at least. The beach is still a half mile away. We park the car in a hilly area, in the gravelly brush. Radley removes a canvas knapsack from his duffel bag, and it shifts and clanks and clangs. We hike down the narrow dirt path that winds its way down the hill. We're sore and stiff, but too excited to complain. Suddenly, the beach spreads in front of us. There's no doubt. This is it. There's the ocean, of course. The breaking waves are foamy white, edging into liquid emerald and tea green, sinking into cobalt blue as the water stretches away. But I'm looking at the sand. The sand is golden, flecked with pink. Imagine overbaked sugar cookies dusted with pink-colored sugar. The grains of rose shimmer in the light of the sun, a million tiny specks of quartz. It's real! Audra screams. We fall to our knees, grasping fistfuls of sand and watching the grains stream out like an hourglass, the falling pink catching the light of the sun. We roll up our pant legs and run with arms spread wide into the surf. Cloudy patches of sand swirl around the surface of the water, and the water glitters with its light. We play and splash and shout. Then we make our way up the beach. Radley takes the tools out of his knapsack. Trowels, scrapers, palette knives, small buckets. 
He divides them up between himself and Audra. Audra takes her tools thoughtfully, and then she leaves us, walking with a measured stride up the beach, sinking footprints into the wet sand. Radley fills his bucket with water, mixes in some of the sand and begins to build. The tip of his tongue pokes out the right corner of his mouth, the way it always does when he's concentrating. I'm going to do it now, he says. Do what? Build the parks. That's what you desire most of all? Parks? Radley looks concerned for a moment, then shrugs. It's the best I can think of. And, you know, I've been thinking about this for a while. It's not like I have any better ideas. So you gotta help me build, man. You can do the flat parts. Those will be real easy. Radley sculpts trees with tall, rounded tops, and I scrape out the spacious sheets of grass. He lovingly shapes the flower patches in tiny detail, each flower with its own fringe of petals. He builds fountains and benches with room for two. He etches out the winding paths and lines them with neatly trimmed hedges. He gets creative with the hedges. Suddenly, I realize that it's been a while since we've seen Audra. I leap up, accidentally kicking apart one of Radley's benches. Hey! he shouts, but I don't stop. I run down the beach. Audra is sculpting too patting and poking and pouring, smiling as she works. It's a sand castle. It's glorious. The central fortress soars upwards. The turrets are dripping masterpieces. The top of the tower reaches almost to her waist. I sit down next to her. Audra? Yeah? Are you doing what I think you're doing? Maybe. Do you really think this will work? I have to believe that it will work, or else it won't work, she says. Her face is tinged with pink, and a light dusting of freckles is coming out on her arms. Her feet are bare, and she has pink sand between her toes. So, are you saying that I'm not supposed to tell you it won't work? Wouldn't you rather believe that it will? She pulls her hair back rubbing muddy sand through it. I watch her build, and then I help for a while. After a bit, Radley strolls over. When are you coming back, he demands. I have a lot more work to do to build all those parks for the whole wide world, and I, like, really don't think it's fair that Audra gets all your help on just one little castle. I'll be right over, I say, but I don't move. My desire to be near Andra is stronger than my sense of duty, stronger than anything else I'm feeling right now. I keep trying to figure out how I'm going to say goodbye to her, that I have to remind myself that this is just make-believe. She's not going anywhere. The tide is coming in, and the waves lick higher and higher up the beach. The castle is almost done. We put the finishing touches Sculpting a few flourishes here and there, shoring up an outer wall. The water keeps coming. Audra sits back and waits, and I sit next to her. When the waves come, the water surges against my stomach, then my chest. The ocean pours in, filling the outer courtyards, streaming in through windows, tearing down doors.
The outer walls begin to erode and drift away. In my head, I'm building a bubble, Audra says. Something hurts inside me when she says this. I want to build a bubble too. I want her to be inside it. Nothing else. A bubble to keep us safe and warm, insulated from all the disappointments. Audra stands up, wades into the center of the flooded castle, and starts digging with her bare hands. I stand up to help, but she waves me off. Bradley walks over, stands, and watches. From the middle of the castle, she pulls out a key, delicately crafted out of hammered pink shell, hanging from a frayed silver ribbon. Did the key materialize, or did she put it there when she started building? I don't know. I don't ask. She kisses the key gently, and then hangs it around her neck. She hugs Radley and whispers something in his ear. Then she puts her arm around my neck and kisses my cheek, and I just stand there thinking, do something, but I have no idea what to do. Audra wades into the surf, farther and farther out. The waves sweep up around her and swallow her until all I can see is her head. She keeps going, and then the water finishes her, and she disappears. For twenty-five long seconds that feel like the rest of my life, I stand there, watching, waiting. Then, cold clarity, I run towards her, the water slashing at my thighs, the mist spraying in my face. Radley is calling my name, but I ignore him. The waves hit my chest. Radley's yelling is washed away by the spray of the sea. I clamp my mouth shut, hold my breath, and dive underwater. And I swim, I swim, just as hard as I can. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. So last weekend, I went on a little road trip of my own and headed over to Las Vegas for the new Media Expo, or NMX. I was invited to be a panelist there by Renee Chambliss and Marshall Latham, which was pretty sweet. I'm friends with Marshall, who runs the Excellent Journey Into podcast and who's done stuff for us here before, and I got to meet all kinds of cool people like Renee, Johnny Feisty, Brian Lincoln of the Full Cast podcast. Chris Lester of Metamore City, Big Anklevich and Rish Outfield of the Dune Steef, and Abigail Hilton of the Guild of Cowery Catchers audiobooks. The panels were fun, we did a couple of live full cast readings, and I helped do one of Rish's stories for the Dune Steef, uh, live, which was pretty crazy. We recorded a bunch of stuff for both Dune Steef and Journey Into Podcasts in our hotel room, which was a hell of a lot of fun. We rode a roller coaster, took down a casino, and then watched the water show at the Bellagio twice, just to gloat about it. 
We also did karaoke night, and if you ever get to do karaoke night with any of these people, I highly recommend it. Big did Frank Sinatra and Def Leppard, Renee did Bad to the Bone, Marshall did that song from Smokey and the Bandit, and uh, Rish did a Taylor Swift song as fake Sean Connery, which I missed, but thank God somebody posted it on YouTube and it was totally as awesome as you would think it is. I had the bright idea to do Pearl Jam, sadly, but I did have fun with it. And yeah, it was just a really, really fun time meeting people. I don't get to go to conventions as much as I should, um, or as much as I'd like to, but I really need to change that. Because the few times I've been able to go, I've had so much fun, and I feel like I get to connect with my tribe. And that was really what New Media Expo was like for me all over again. It was so much fun. I'm really glad I got to do it. And now my podcast backlog has increased by God knows how many episodes, but, you know, I'm totally good with that. Okay, feedback. Oh, God, feedback. Seems like a long time since we've done this feedback, like uh, forever. But that's only because this is going to be the best feedback segment you've heard all year. So far, at least. Maybe. Anyway, this week is for Cat Howard's The Calendar of the Saints, read by Amal El-Motar. A story of a swordswoman whose duels reflect the will of God, praise her name. Generally, people really liked it. Varda said, I love this story, especially its structure incorporating the different saints. I think hagiography is such a blast, and historically speaking, an interesting storytelling medium, that with its larger-than-life figures and really gory iconography, it's like reading the police crime blotter in the newspaper, except instead of criminals, you get religiously-themed superheroes. Aside from the dueling thing, God herself sounds like a sensible deity, nice and pro-science. I wonder who the patron saint of speech-language pathologists would be in this world, because I want a medal. Fennel said, I love this story. One thing I really liked was how the author negotiated between tweaking so many elements slightly, but retaining a lot of the cultural and historical feel of Catholicism and Catholic history. I also found the way this world treated gender fascinating. The story could have conceivably been written with a male main character, but there were times that the difference in the way this world viewed gender struck me pretty hard. God is referred to as a female, women are seen as equal fighters if not superior to men, and although prostitution is still viewed as a dirty trade, Jan's origins don't hamper her employment by the church as much as one would expect. I think the story did a good job of exploring the culture that surrounds martyrdom, where saint's death is revered almost as much as the saint's actions in life, if not more. Her suicide seems to be both a matter of pride and a matter of spirituality. It seems like a pointless waste to me, but I can't deny that in her culture, it's a powerful act. And since the story defined once and for all the ongoing duel between science and faith, in which there can only be one, or maybe two, there was a very interesting discussion about science being the search for fact, and whether or not back in the day that translated to science being the search for God. Which sounds kind of strange to our modern contemporary minds until you realize that's kind of like Star Trek V, right? Cousin, why does God need a spaceship? Because it's William Shatner, you twit, it'll hurt more. Man, William Shatner really would have been the greatest Star Trek saint ever, don't you think? Well, that about does it for this feedback segment. You know the drill. Grab your finest spoon and hitch a ride on over with us at forum.escapeartist.net. Tell us what you thought of this week's story. Tell us what your favorite stories are from last year. 
If you like what we're doing, please consider visiting podcastle.org and making a donation. Your money helps pay our authors and helps keep us going. Thank you very much. Well, that was our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. No, really, you liked it, right? Okay. On behalf of all of us here at PodCastle, all of us, Anne Leckie, Peter Wood, LaShawn Wanick, Anna Schwind, and myself, thank you so much for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another great fantasy story, so set yourself down on the beach with the people you love and enjoy the sunset. See you then. PodCastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Our closing quote is from John Steinbeck, who said, I was born lost, and take no pleasure in being found. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in a week. <laughs>